Hey, it's Anita, and this is Bitcoin and Co. Hello girls and boys, ladies and gentlemen, welcome to episode 77 of the Bitcoin and Co. podcast. My guest this time is Douglas Backum. He is the co-founder and CEO of the Swiss hardware wallet manufacturer Shift Crypto. Douglas holds a PhD in neuroscience and shifted his career from starting a scientific research lab in academia to building a hardware wallet manufacturer at a time when no hardware wallets existed. Douglas saw the need for a solution and started the company together with Bitcoin core maintainer Jonas Schnelli in 2015. Shift Crypto is one of my sponsors. And after this conversation, I have to say I'm even more impressed with their work. The Bitbox O2 has some additional features that set it apart from the other hardware wallets in the market, like the dual chip approach, for instance. I didn't know how that works before, and I'm that type of user who wants to have a general understanding of the concepts, as that strengthens my trust in the products, especially now in the Bitbox O2. Douglas is explaining these concepts in an easy, understandable manner. If you still have questions, no problem. Send me an email to hello at anitaposch.com and you will get an answer. For the more technical users of you, After the latest Electrum upgrade, it's possible to do a multi-sig setup with the Bitbox O2 with Electrum. Check out the Bitbox O2 hardware wallet to secure your coins at anita.link forward slash Bitbox O2. That's Bitbox and a zero and a two. You can get a 10% discount with the code ANITA in the checkout. Hear from Douglas after these announcements. Bitcoin Austria, Bitcoin Argentina, Bitcoin Saigon and the Greek cryptocurrency community are co-hosting the first global Bitcoin meetup on Saturday the 19th of September. It's an open online event. Everybody can join for free. I will join. Join too at anita.link forward slash meetup. Local Bitcoins is one of the most trusted and the largest peer-to-peer -peer Bitcoin trading platforms in the world. On Local Bitcoins, you can buy and sell your Bitcoin in an easy, fast and secure way, always protected by escrow. Unlike stock-like exchanges, Local Bitcoins allows you to trade with people like you and you can choose any currency you prefer and find a safe payment method to complete your trade. Local Bitcoins also offers a web wallet, so you can trade and deposit and send out your Bitcoin all in one account. Go to www.localbitcoins.com to buy and sell Bitcoin. Not your keys, not your coins, is one of the basic rules in Bitcoin. Therefore, I definitely recommend using a hardware wallet, which is what most crypto experts use. For those who have difficulties with the technical requirements and constant maintenance of hardware wallets, there is the card wallet. The card wallet is a very simple and secure solution for long-term storage of Bitcoin and Ethereum. No software updates needed and it leaves no traces on the blockchain. You can give it away as a gift or inheritance. You can send Bitcoin to it and all you have to do is to store it in a safe place. 
The manufacturers are the Austrian state printing house and Coinfinity, Austria's first Bitcoin broker founded in 2014. Order your card wallet at cardwallet.com forward slash Anita and get 20% off. And finally, a shout out to the Let's Talk Bitcoin Network, where you can find other Bitcoin-related podcasts like Proof of Love, Bitcoin Audible, POV Crypto and more. Hello Douglas, great to have you on the show. It's the first time I had an interview with Jonas in German some months ago, but I'm very pleased to have you too now here. Hello. Hi. Hi, Anita. Yeah, thank you very much for the this opportunity. I'm looking forward. Yeah, please introduce yourself. That's always the first thing we do here so that the listeners know who you are, what you do and what you did before. Sure. Let's see, where should I start? I guess from my birth, start early on. I'm from Wisconsin originally. I was born and raised there in the U.S., And I guess from an earliest age, I liked school. I was kind of good at it. And so I tried to stay in school as long as I could. I ended up going to university, got a, a degree in mechanical engineering. I went to grad school, uh, studied mechanical engineering some more, researched with a focus on robotics and artificial intelligence, and some cognitive science also, and then ended up getting a PhD in neuroscience. Uh, which is a bit different. And yeah, I, I guess getting into AI at the time, at least, it felt very primitive. And so I thought in order to advance that field, it makes sense to study a bit more about real intelligence and so neurons. So I decided to get a PhD in neuroscience. That led me to Atlanta, where I got my PhD, and then traveling around the world a bit. So I had an opportunity to live in, I guess, five different countries and three continents, including going to Tokyo. And then eventually into Switzerland, where I am now. I've been here for almost a decade already. And of course, none of that is about Bitcoin. And so there came a point in my life where I needed to decide, uh, okay, what am I going to do next now that school is basically ending? And so uh, I ended up getting into Bitcoin around that time. And so what, what I'm doing now, I started a company called Shift Crypto, and we make the Bitbox hardware wallet. And now I'm working on that. And I guess we'll get into a bit more details about that. Yeah, exactly. So when and how did you hear about Bitcoin in the first place? Yeah, so the first time, I guess, was 2013 and in Tokyo, in Japan. And Bitcoin was a really big headline on the front page of the newspaper. And that really confused me. I didn't know what it was. Took a quick look and was like, okay, this is some kind of monopoly money that people have on computers. Like, this is really strange. Why Why is this on the front page of a Japanese newspaper? And I spent a bit of time digging in and it didn't, didn't take me long to figure out, you know, this, this is actually kind of important. And being, having a scientific background, I was most interested uh, initially in like the scientific problems that Bitcoin solved. So It formed a solution to the Byzantine generals problem, basically a way to not have to trust anybody if you're doing something online. And so it basically formed the, the foundation for digital money that, as we all know, Bitcoin with all of these really fascinating properties of censorship resistance, not needing to trust anyone, no centralized uh, authority controlling it and things like that. And 
just initially, you know, it's a it's a deep rabbit hole to figure out what Bitcoin actually means and what its impact actually means. But initially, just very superficially, I saw, okay, this solves an important problem. There could be a lot of things that could be come out of this. And so that, that really fascinated me. I started getting involved a bit more and more, probably like a lot of people with technical background, when they first got involved, I tried to, you know, create trading algorithms to try to play the the spread and arbitrage and, you know, shorts and, and whatever, quickly learn that that's not my forte. <laughs> if, if you want to, if you want to deal with that, it's a full-time job and there's a lot of people who know what they're doing. And so got out of that, still in neuroscience at the time. And I guess we can continue from there. So it was the, the novelty, the revolutionary scientific uh, solution that was interesting you. Yeah, initially at first. And then, of course, you know, the further down you go in into the rabbit hole, like I, wanting to stay in school, you know, I, I was more interested in researching things that I thought were important. So money really never had an impact for me. And it was never really a consideration for me. Not that I had money. It's just that I felt, you know, hap money doesn't buy happiness, common saying. But getting involved in Bitcoin, it actually opens your eyes a lot to what money actually is, what money means, and how you know, governments and are kind of what their role is in, in money and, you know, commerce and things like that. It really opens your eyes. And then, you know, that's the start of the rabbit hole and you get deeper and deeper. I guess uh, a, a question then is what was the actual, you know, thing that pushed me over the edge into leaving neuroscience and getting into uh, Bitcoin? And I would say that was probably more, more pragmatic things as opposed to ideological things. In general, I like to work on things that I think can change the world. And so most of my life decisions have been based off of doing things I find interesting, find fun. You know, neuroscience is definitely something that can change the world, but Bitcoin is also. And mm -hmm. since I had to leave school, you know, the next step in an academic career would be uh, to become a professor. I wasn't sure if I'd like to be a professor. And um, thinking instead, maybe, maybe a startup is interesting. I think there's a lot of parallels there between starting your own lab as a professor in a university versus having a startup. For example, you need to have a good idea. You need to be able to convince people to give you money for that idea. Like in academia, it's the, the governments with grants. In startup world, of course, uh, venture capitalists and angel investors and so on. You need to be able to convince other people to work with you, recruit a lab or recruit a team. And you know the potential payoff is a bit different. So if you really hit on it, in academia, you get tenure, uh, which is good. But in startup world, you can have a, a bit higher higher uh, uh, payout in the end. Um, mm. And so I thought, okay, why not? Let's try something new. Bitcoin seems pretty cool. How can I get into it? I didn't think anyone would want to give a neuroscientist a job. So I just decided to uh, start a company and give <laughs> myself a job. Yeah, that's the best option. Build your own let's say empire <laughs> in a way. Yeah, and you, you can try. <laughs> yeah, you can try exactly. And I guess in neuroscience, yeah, I mean, you can always do uh, scientific research and stuff, but it's not something so novel and, and new. And can, I mean, it can change the world, but I think Bitcoin can change the world more at the moment. Yeah, I think uh, Bitcoin has uh, potential to affect a lot more different aspects of society. So um, there's, and it's a lot newer, of course, just to give neuroscience a little, little, uh, uh, 
little shout out, I guess. Yeah, neuroscience is also relatively new. It's only about 100 years old since people really started studying it seriously. And so the brain itself is really complex and there's a lot unknown. And so I think there's going to be some, maybe not anytime soon, but some pretty fascinating results that come out of that also. Mm -hmm. Interesting. I heard you say in another interview that the brain is much more complex than uh, artificial intelligence and machine learning uh, can be at the moment and that they cannot compete. When do you think they can compete? Can they ever? Yeah. So I, I'd say compete is probably the wrong word because it really depends on what, what problem space uh, you're talking about. And so, of course, you know, computers can far outcompete humans at mathematical formulas and, you know, computation and stuff like that. And so I guess part of this question stems from, you know, a, a more uh, fundamental issue of, you know, is AI going to take over the world, uh, which in some circles, uh, people talk about that a lot. And I think, I guess my comments in the past are more so on, in general, I think people underestimate a lot what the brain is actually capable of, what actually happens inside of your body. And it's just as an example, you know, the brain has, I think about 80 billion, 90 billion neurons inside. I just looked it up. The latest microchips have around that many transistors, the more advanced ones, about 50, 50 billion. But the thing is, a transistor does really one thing. But a cell in your brain, a neuron, it's really like a, a supercomputer in itself. And so you have a lot of different molecular processes happening and all happening in parallel, all inside the same cell. And this has a huge amount of computational complexity that's possible. And more so, the architecture is a, is a significant difference. So the brain has, it's all interconnected. So there's more connections in the brain than there are stars in the universe, for example. Mm -hmm. And I think, you know, if, if you, if you start to deal with like quantifying the computational capacity, uh, it, it's the, the brain far outpaces computers. And so if you give a computer a specific task, it's going to do really well, but you know, the world's not uh, set up like that. The world's quite noisy, a lot of different things happening and the brain has evolved over over millions of years in order to, to deal with this, this situation in a, in a way, in a great way. And, you know, and it, it works. Um, yeah. So in, in that aspect, and I think for AI to compete, I don't want it's dangerous to say it can never compete, but I think cer certain things will have to change in particular, the computational architecture of, of computers is going to be, have, it's going to have to be a lot more massively parallel maybe have some kind of evolutionary mechanisms involved, and so on and so on. I think this actually happening will be a, a long time away. Mm -hmm. Do you have any ideas or examples or a vision how uh, AI or mach learned machines could interact with Bitcoin? I hadn't thought about it. Yeah, um, it's, it, I just, it just uh, came to yeah. me, this question. <laughs> I, I think, of course, you know, if you have a task... So like where, where computers work well is when they have a specific uh, task that they're given. And in that task, it can be a, a noisy environment, but it has a specific, I guess, goal to achieve. And so I'm, I'm quite confident that there's a lot of uh, artificial neural networks and machine learning out there trying to figure out uh, how to trade Bitcoin, for example, high-speed training 
high speed trading uh, and things like that. And so, hmm. yeah, I, I guess that's the the most obvious example. Deeper down, uh, I'm sure you could think of some some more. <laughs> mm-hmm. And I mean, I have really no idea about neuroscience, to be honest. Yeah. But I I read that the brain is plastic and it's very changeable. And yeah. you said that also before. What what is your brain capable of? Do you have examples? Yeah. So the brain the brain's pretty fascinating. And I would say just to touch on AI again, I think what will come probably sooner than you know, AI taking over the world would be the merger of biology and AI. So books, uh, for example. And early on when I was doing my PhD, a book that I read that was quite inspiring to me is called Natural Born Cyborgs. Cyborgs. And it talked about how humans, um, due to their brain, are, are basically already a form of cyborgs. And one of the examples I remember is something as simple as a pencil. And so we use we learn how to use a pencil to write words down on a piece of paper. And so the pencil becomes a bit of an extension of our body. And the words on the piece of paper become an extension of our memory. And there's other examples like, you know, something as simple as glasses helps your your vision better. And then there are, you know, some people would even consider cyborgs are walking among us today in the sense of some people who can't hear anymore. They have cochlear implants. So that's a direct electric connection to neurons in your brain. We can help them here. There's some retinal retinal implants to help people see. And one of the fascinating things about the brain is, you know, it's designed to adapt to environments. And so you can connect, let's say, machines, electrodes to the brain. And in both directions, you can send signals into the brain, and it'll be able to use those and learn about them to have some kind of meaning. Uh, and so there's a lot of work on like prosthetic arms in order to give some kind of uh, sensory feedback of uh, how the muscles would move or the skin would feel. You can send electrical signals into the brain and the brain can learn about that. Uh, and vice versa, you can connect electrodes in the brain to record neural signals. And the brain will learn how to adapt its signals in order to, for example, move the prosthetic arm. And there's a lot of work that's been done for decades now in monkeys showing this. And, you know, that technology is, there's a few companies trying to commercialize that technology for, for people also. Hmm. And this adapting to surroundings or circumstances reminds me a little bit of Bitcoin's capability to regulate the hashing difficulty depending on the current hash rate. Do you see other parallels of organism or brain to to Bitcoin? Um, no. <laughs> <laughs> Me neither. <laughs> I thought maybe he knows something. <laughs> yeah, not yet. <laughs> so yeah. I guess I guess you know more broadly, there's a science in emergent phenomenon, and so you know how the like cognition in the brain and things like that. It's an emergent phenomenon from the network of activity. And so I'd say maybe a step higher, higher than the brain. There's emergent phenomenon all all around nature, and probably there's some that could be found in in Bitcoin and and the society around it. Mm-hmm. I have another question about the brain. I read that s- stress affects the brain mostly ne- negatively, I guess. 
I mean, now due to the pandemic, many people are worried over contracting or spreading the virus and the economical situation is tense. Everything is uncertain. Yeah. How does this affect our brain and our bodies and, and what are the consequences? Yeah. Yeah. I, I can't say too much there because it's not, it wasn't my specialty in neuroscience. I was more on the, the network and cellular level as opposed to behavior level. But stress, of course, we have stress for a reason. So it's not always bad. You know, this, the fight or flight response, uh, the stress really primes your body to, you know, run away from danger or, or fight danger. And so it really, um, uh, you know, prepares your, your body state and your mental state for that. But of course, you know, that, that's something that can't, can't sustain itself. And so if you have constant stress, eventually it eats away at, um, your brain and your body, uh, because it's depriving resources that would normally go to, you know, uh, I don't know, I'm just speculating, but maybe uh, like fixing things, fixing your muscles, fixing your brain, recovery, and so on. And yeah, I mean, with the pandemic, yeah, it's a tough situation for a lot of people around the world. And yeah, the only advice, I guess, is try try to reduce the stress as much as you can. And I guess there's no silver bullet for that. Uh, it's going to be different for different people. Hmm. What are you doing? I mean, entrepreneurship is a wild ride in a way. <laughs> what, what are your routines? Do you have routines to help you uh, staying stable? Yeah. So entrepreneurship is definitely um, um, not trying to avoid stress at all costs. <laughs> <laughs> so I'm contradicting myself. Yeah, there's a lot of stress in entrepreneurship. I would say uh, with respect to the virus and, and lockdowns and stuff, I'd say it's I feel a bit lucky to be in Switzerland in the sense that there's a lot of beautiful nature all around. And so it's easy to get out into that. And for me personally, I, I grew up in a very small town in the countryside, but just being in nature is very, very peaceful. I think that that's helped me a lot through, through the whole lockdown. Also just in general with the stress of uh, entrepreneurship. I mean, every day I, I walk along a beautiful little, little river from my apartment to get to the office And, you know, the mountains, uh, really, really amazing. Yeah. Okay. And um, you said you are in Switzerland almost a decade now. Why did you go to Switzerland in the first place? Yeah, neuroscience again. Ah, okay. <laughs> so I, I actually came to be a postdoc at the university here at ETH Hazarek. And so I, was, I had my own a small group in, in another laboratory uh, working, on, working on the brain. And is this uh, the ETH Zurich? Is this where you met Christian Decker and other people who are now uh, into Bitcoin? No, actually. Getting into Bitcoin, I guess, I didn't really touch on how, how I transitioned. But interestingly enough, initially, our, our company was a spinoff of ETH. A spin, uh, Bitcoin company was a spinoff of a neuroscience lab at ETH, interesting enough. And the, I guess the, the, the technology that was similar was the, the lab I was in was a neuroengineering lab. So they built tools to better study neurons. And that included PCB design, microcontrollers, manufacturing, um, things like that. And so somehow I could convince the university that this was enough of a, a commonality to become a spinoff. They're, they're very supportive of it, which is cool. So was my old advisor. And I guess using, using some of these skills, I started playing around with making hardware. And at the time when I got involved in Bitcoin, there was no hardware wallets in existence. The idea existed, but nothing was on the market. 
And if you're around in that time, you may also recall that there's a lot of scams with hardware in Bitcoin at the time, in particular with mining equipment. And so I wasn't sure if hardware wallets would actually come to the market. So I just decided to start building my own. Early on, when I got into Bitcoin, I, I, I recognized the security implications. And so it took me a long time before I actually felt comfortable holding Bitcoin. So, okay, there's, there's an obvious need here. So I'm, I'm going to make something. And then getting to know the rest of the Bitcoin community was really uh, thanks a lot to the, the Bitcoin meetups organized by the, the Swiss Bitcoin Association. And that was really great. And so Switzerland's a very small country, but it, it really is becoming a center of Bitcoin, center of cryptocurrencies in general. And so you had a lot of opportunities to meet some very fascinating people. And so I met yeah, my co-founder, Jonas Schnelli, who's one of the, the Bitcoin core maintainers, uh, just happened to be living in the same city as me. And we met at a meetup and yeah, I got a lot of great feedback when I, I talked about what I was doing. And yeah, the whole meetup space was really the, the key to actually finding people to join me and, and launch a company. Mm -hmm. And when was that? When did you launch Shift? So I would say be, before launching is when is, is more so the start point. And I would say that would be sometime in mid-2014. That's when I had a prototype and started talking to people uh, and so on and so on. And we launched the company with Jonas in October 2015. Um, so about a year later. And a lot of that was, you know, polishing up the, the hardware, polishing up the software in order to use it, figuring out supply chains and manufacturing partners and, and stuff like that. Mm -hmm. And uh, what was the first time, like when you had a, a big change or move upwards in a way in, in the company, like getting venture money or something else? What was the first uh, yeah. time <laughs> you grew? So I would say both Jonas and myself have a lot of self-confidence. Maybe that's the best way to put it. And so we, we thought we mm -hmm. could basically do everything ourselves. And so we tried. <laughs> and and I think we did we did okay. We actually in I think April 2016 we uh launched. Uh so we started selling Bitbox devices on the market, the Bitbox 01. And we ended up getting customers in about 100 countries. And, you know, we we really didn't know what we we're doing as far as uh business goes in the sense of, you know, I think the technology we had down, but The other aspects of business like marketing you know the internal operations and stuff like that and so in uh which year was it in 2017 i guess we joined a fintech accelerator program the f10 program in zurich uh, and this was really great for us it really brought together the company as, as more of a professional business we got some other people to join the team and contacts to investors and so on and in later in 2017, we took some angel investment round and then again, uh, a much bigger fundraise in 2018. I hope you liked this conversation as much as I did. My goal is to educate as many people as possible about Bitcoin. If you like what I do, I ask you to contribute and support my work with a monthly subscription. You'll get bonus content, early access and ad-free episodes. If you prefer, you can also donate Bitcoin and Lightning. Visit anita.link forward slash p for Patron for more information. If you can't afford this or have other priorities, I understand. You can also support the show. Write a recommendation on Apple Podcasts. You can do that even if you do not have an iPhone. 
go to Apple Podcasts, search for Anita Posch, scroll down to Reviews, click on Write a Review and write a few words. Thanks. You said before that before there were hardware wallets, it was so difficult to secure your coins and you didn't feel comfortable with the solutions that there were. And mm. I think also Mount Gox was at that time. Mm. Yep. Now, since we have hardware wallets and it's a lot easier, I would say, to use Bitcoin, it's still difficult, I think, mm. for new people to come in. I can remember when I uh, bought my first Bitcoin and then a hardware wallet and used it. It's so completely new and you have to learn to trust these things. There is no long history behind it. Basically, I think you can only learn to trust. <laughs> What's your approach to that? Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, it was interesting early on. It, it was very much the Wild West. And I would say I still wasn't even that early on compared to Jonas and others. But it felt so much like the Wild West where it just everything was up to you uh, to figure out. And, you know, securing was really complicated. Securing your coins if you don't have hardware wallet. So I had basically Electrum on an offline computer. It took me a long time to set that up and feel comfortable around it. But just, you know, getting coins. So Mount Cox, how, how do you transfer money into Mt. Cox when basically you couldn't do it through your own bank. Yeah, it was, it was very interesting times. And like you say, um, jumping in even later, even even now, it still seems super complicated. And you know, our goal as a company, and of course, a lot of other, other companies also, is to try to make it as simple as possible. And I would say that's a, an ongoing, ongoing battle. But also there's some, you know, just fundamental concepts that... Um, you kind of have to uh, shift your perspective a little bit in order to handle. And that's, like you said, being being responsible. So, you know, Bitcoin's great because it can give you financial sovereignty, financial freedom. You know, one of the early early statements was be your own bank with Bitcoin and Bitcoin allows that. Uh, but if you're your own bank, you also have to be your own security team, which is not not necessarily an easy thing to do. And so, yeah, with hardware wallets, the concept was to to make that a lot easier, be a security team for you. There's a lot of UX focus that's still needed in order to make the experience as simple as possible. It's a high high priority for for our company. And some of the the concepts where people just have to um, you know, let it sink in is also you know, the concept of passwords. And so everyone's very laissez-faire, I guess, with passwords because in in their whole life, if they lose their password, there's always some kind of recovery mechanism. And so really sinking it into people that if you lose your your password, you know, your coins can be gone, your your financial your finances can be gone, requires, you know, a, a mental change and then of course a behavioral change. And yeah, I'd say it's it's still, I guess, I don't know if unsolved problem is is the right word, but it's still still an issue that needs to be tackled. Yeah, I just think it's it's very early still. Yeah. And I mean, it's also a great, a, a big learning process that's going on. I mean, I just take me as an example. I mean, I'm, I'm, I'm used to do secure passwords and have a, key, a password manager mm. and stuff. But for instance, the, I mean, of course, I also use a Google authenticator for 2FA. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yep. But I think for many people, this is a step that is not so easy to take. Yeah. That's already um, a step. Yeah. 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 And then maybe even go one step further to use like uh, these, how are they called? These keys, no, these USB sticks uh, that like you put UD. in. 
Yeah, like yeah. a Yubi Keynes, exactly. I, I didn't do that until now, to be honest, because I'm I'm not sure about the concept. And if you don't have anybody who shows you how it works or have great videos, and then you have to find those educational videos, it's really difficult. Yes, indeed. Yeah. So it's it's a bit of a a new paradigm. And so but I think it's it's a it's a healthy it's a healthy step in that direction in order to try to these these big companies are kind of chipping away at you know privacy for example and you know self-reliance and so on is i guess less of a life skill i would say in the last decades but i think that's maybe not necessarily a healthy thing and so having some responsibility for for your own privacy and your own freedoms i think is important and so i think of course the the goal of companies is to make things as convenient as possible users shouldn't have to think about every little technical detail but i think also with bitcoin the technology can allow that but also still preserve the privacy and some of your your self freedoms mm. yeah but still it's it's a step more like you have to think of so many things mm. i mean just just about the fact in the last months there was a data breach at Ledger, yep. another hardware wallet uh, manufacturer, where the marketing database with the shipping addresses was leaked. Yeah. And yeah, so basically, if you buy a hardware wallet, you also have to think about where to send it. Don't send it to your home. I mean... Oh, uh, <laughs> yeah. it's really much. I mean, I understand that I sh that one should do it, but I think from for people, you know, like newbies and and people who are not used to that, they they won't do this. And yeah. Yeah. what, for instance, is what are you doing? What's your security measures on the marketing database you have? Yeah. So, um, yeah. Well, first first of all, our marketing database doesn't have any delivery details, and so it's just names and emails, whatever people give us, in order for us to send out newsletters and updates and things like that. And of course, people can have fake names and, and fake email addresses. So that that's a bit better. Of course, our shipping database has to have delivery addresses uh, in order for us to ship, ship goods to people. That's inevitable, but our policy there is to remove any uh, sensitive data, such as delivery addresses, after a certain amount of months, say like three months to try to protect, help protect people's privacies. And uh, I think you asked something else in that question too, but I lost track. I, I did too, to be <laughs> honest. <laughs> yeah, I just, I think in general, how does shift secure privacy of people and, and their data? Yeah. So of course, you know, protecting privacy is something we, we take to heart. And so any any personal details, if we don't need it, we'll get rid of it and try to go to go beyond that also. I'd say one one that reminds me of one example of, for example, where we also allow people the opportunity to connect their own node um, to the hardware wallet. And this uh, enables you to have uh, more... Um, I guess, privacy on your personal finances, your personal finances situation. So to explain that a little bit, uh, a full node, of course, is a copy of the, the Bitcoin blockchain. And so uh, the Bitcoin blockchain is where the public repository where all of your uh, coins are are um, recorded. So how many coins you have in your address is recorded on the public blockchain. What a lot of people uh, don't realize when, when they buy a hardware wallet is uh, hardware wallet gives you security, but it doesn't give you privacy. 
And so in order to use a hardware wallet, you have a software interface to it. And that software interface needs to ask the blockchain, how many coins do you have for, for your addresses? And by default, you're going to ask the wallet ma- or the, the, the wallet manufacturer, basically. So Ledger, Trezor, Shift Crypto Us, you need to send your, basically you're exposing your whole financial history, Bitcoin financial history through our servers. And I don't think any of us record that or keep track of it, but it's possible that we could. Or it's possible that, you know, a government agency, some legal agency comes and forces us to do that. I'd say that'd probably be a, a bigger risk. That's never happened to us yet, but, you know, that's a possibility. And so how do you gain back your privacy there? You should have an option to be able to connect to your own your own node. And the node could be a service on the cloud. It could be something you have in your home and things like that. And so we're, we're conscious of privacy. We're trying to stay at the forefront there and try to figure out how to help our customers stay private. And of course, we're, we're as with anything, we're always open to, to feedback from others if they have ideas how we can improve. Mm-hmm. What's possible at the moment with the Bitbox O2? I can connect it to a full node, like a Raspberry Blitz, for instance, mm-hmm. or if I have, it's also, I could also have Bitcoin Core on my computer and connect uh, the Bitbox. Yeah. So I, I don't know. We have some blog posts explaining uh, the technical details of, of how to handle that. But yes, basically, yes, you can have your own, your own full node. You could connect to that. It's through the, mm-hmm. the Electrum, Electrum server, I believe. Yeah. yeah. And so, and I believe that can also connect to the core blockchain. Mm-hmm. And you also have the possibility that the hardware wallet, the Bitbox O2, can be connected to a smartphone. Yes. Is it is it Android and iPhone? At the moment, it's only Android. Technically, iPhone is possible. The issue there is more so with Apple themselves. They like to, I guess, be be a toll gate, and so they have a lot of rules and regulations to follow, and a lot of profit sharing. Um, mm-hmm. And so if, if we connect to iPhone, we have to set all that up. And I, I'd say that's the primary roadblock for all hardware so far with them. But that said, you know, something down the line, I'm sure that will, that will come. But do they also want money from you then? Yep, they do. <laughs> but for what? When, when I use the, for instance, I have an iPhone and I would use the Bitbox O2 to send uh, like Bitcoin to my hardware wallet to store it there. Then they would take a share. No, 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 no. So they they wouldn't take a share of actually using it. They would take a share, not from the individual customers, but they'd take a share from the manufacturer. And this would come during sales. So each hardware wallet we sell, that would be for iOS. They would like some money for that. Wow. Okay. That, that's Apple. Yeah. Uh huh. But that's not the case for Android. No, I, not for Android. Yeah. yeah. So that's the. It's more open than uh, Apple. Yeah. Yeah, that's the advantages of open systems. Yes. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. And and from the security standpoint, what do you think? Is there a big difference uh, between using it with a smartphone or on the desktop computer? Um, I, I would say not so much because part of the, the threat model that we have is we just automatically assume the worst. And the worst in this case would be that the the app you're using on the desktop or the app you're using in a smartphone is already compromised. And so for our security model would already make that assumptions. And so it shouldn't be dependent on that. 
And how, how you get around that is basically on the hardware wallet itself, on the Bitbox, we display all of the important information. So the address you're sending coins to, the amount of coins, the fee, and you can confirm it uh, that way. And that said, you know, it's still, it's still a challenge for, for people to uh, hack the desktop app or the mobile app. And I think, but considering that, I would say the security is not so different. In fact, the security might be a little bit better on the mobile because of all the sandboxing that different apps have. So a bit more, the operating system is a bit more designed for segregating apps and data storage. That's interesting. But that I think it's only the case when I update all my Android versions all the time. Yeah, that's a good point. That's a very good point. So the Android version, of course, needs to be updated. That's a lot easier process in desktop. And unfortunately, a lot of mobile phone manufacturers tend to be lazy about giving security updates um, mm -hmm. and operating system updates. So that's a good point. Yeah, because, I mean, for instance, I have an older Android phone. I bought it in 2016, and mm -hmm. I still use it. And But I, I think I don't get any Android updates anymore. So I think I, I have to change to a new one now. Unfortunately. Okay. Yeah, unfortunately. Can you maybe explain uh, for people who are uh, not very tech-savvy how it's possible that if I plug in the hardware wallet into my computer, I always say to the people to explain it in easy words, so that the data is not touching the internet in that yeah. way. Yeah? yeah, but but how does this work? How how does this uh, Bitbox uh, do this? Yeah, so I, I can try to explain that. So the Bitbox or hardware wallets in general, they try to isolate all the secrets uh, and keep the secrets on the hardware wallet itself, so that they never touch the computer or your mobile phone or your operating system. Because on your computer, your mobile phone, your operating system. There can be malware, there can be hackers involved in some way. And how that works is like your your Bitcoin, it's called a wallet, but a wallet's maybe not the best terminology, not the clearest terminology. It's more like, I guess, a, a keychain, like your keys for your apartment or your car. And, you know, in order to secure your apartment or your car, you put your keys in your pocket and you don't want anyone to touch it. And so with Bitcoin... What a wallet really is, is just a bunch of keys. And these keys are random numbers. And each random number controls access to your coins. And like I said before, your coins are on the public blockchain. And so these keys, you don't want anyone else to have them. You want to keep them in your pocket. And how that works with a hardware wallet is it's, it's a little bit like signing a bank check. I know Americans are maybe more familiar with this than, than Europeans. But basically, a bank check or a contract, let's say you want to buy... A pizza for you know some satoshis and so you write a contract i want to uh, pay this pizza place this many this much bitcoin and then you send that into the hardware wallet the hardware wallet has the keys there and all it does is is sign it so it signs your name to it or signs like okay it's okay to send this amount of coins to this address And then the private keys stay inside the hardware wallet. And this contract, the signed contract, the signed check now comes back out. And due to cryptography, no one can manipulate it anymore. And then you can send that off and um, the transaction happens. So I don't think that was exactly <laughs> simple, um, but uh, I guess that's that's kind of the concept. And so these, these keys, how did they get into the hardware wallet in the first place? These hardware wallets are, are basically uh, general purpose computers. They have a small 
microcomputer inside. There's a random number generator to generate entropy. And you create these keys on the device itself. And so you can create the keys on the device. You can use the keys on the device. You can load keys if you need to recover uh, from backup onto the device itself. And these keys never touch the computer. Mm -hmm. But how are the keys then created when I uh, initialize the hardware wallet or when? Yeah. So when you first initialize the hardware wallet, when you create a wallet, the keys are created. And so different manufacturers will have different processes depending on the hardware. What we do is we actually have two, they're called true random number generators or pseudo random number generators. We have two of them, one on a secure chip, one also on a general purpose microcontroller. and they create enough randomness in order to create these keys. And we also, part, part of our security model is to try not to trust anything. And so we try to add, I guess, security in depth. Like if secure chip is backdoored or if the microchip is backdoored, then we add extra entropy also, which would come from some randomness that's generated during the, the factory installation. So randomness we input, but also randomness that comes from the user in the form of the user password that they enter and some other forms of randomness. And so ra randomness is really the key because you don't want that to be predictable because if it's predictable, then someone can predict what keys are being created and then offline be able to basically simulate your wallet and steal your funds. And this has happened in the past with some online wallets uh, where there is some predictability in the, the JavaScript, the web, the web code that was used to create entropy. Mm -hmm. And that's why it's so important to have a hardware wallet, to use a hardware wallet. Yeah, I'd say a hardware wallet is, in my opinion, by far the safest way to generate keys and store store cryptocurrencies. And, you know, it, there's a lot of attentions made specifically to design it for this specific purpose, whereas like websites have, uh, you know, a lot of it's general purpose. So there's a lot of different it, it's designed to be general uh, as opposed to specific. And so there's less fo focus on security. I mean, I often see people write or say on forums or something like that, you can do your paper wallet on your own. It doesn't uh, cost you anything. What do you think about paper wallets? Yeah, so paper wallets or, or metal wallets, I, I think they're a good thing. But there's a couple of issues. One is, you know, creating the entropy. So people can use, you know, uh, dice, for example, to roll dice. That's a very, very good way to create random numbers. But the problem is, if you want to use this random number, you still need a computer because you have to create the the receiving addresses. And so all the addresses uh, you send to someone else to send you coins, it's derived from this secret key, this private key. And that's not something that can be done by hand. So you're going to need some kind of computer already in order to um, um, use this private key. And so you're already touching a computer. So it's not it's not purely purely paper. And then another issue is that when it comes time to spend your coins, you can't spend coins from a piece of paper. Um, I guess, of course, you could treat them like banknotes and hand it to someone else. Uh, that works. But if you actually want to send, create a transaction and send some Bitcoin over the internet, then you need a computer again. So there comes a point where you have to load your private keys back into a wallet. And so you're back at square one. Uh, you need to use a software wallet or a hardware wallet. And I think the, the, the thing that is so dangerous is then you need a computer, you need a machine. And how do you prevent that from not going to the internet? Exactly. Yeah. It's, yeah. it's a challenge. Yeah. 
Yeah. I have one last question regarding the, the, the magic of hardware wallets. You said you have a secure chip and a microchip. Can you please explain what those are? What's the difference between them? Yeah. So, yeah, we have a dual chip approach, uh, which kind of distinguishes ourselves from Trezor and Ledger. Whereas Trezor, for example, uses only a general purpose microcontroller. But the problem with general purpose microcontrollers are they're, they're not designed for security. And so there's, there's various ways that you can, if you have possession uh, of one of these chips, there's ways you can, for, for efficient cost, I would say, for low cost, you can get secrets out of it. So a secure chip, that's Ledger's approach. Secure chips are, are basically microprocessors, again, small computers, but they're designed to make it very difficult to extract secrets out of them. So they're hardened physically in, in different ways uh, to prevent physical attacks and also algorithmic attacks and, and so on and so on. And so that's very good. It gives a lot of security. But the problem is with secure chips, uh, oftentimes it requires an NDA to be signed with the secure chip manufacturer. And so any code you put onto it uh, cannot be published. Uh, and so closed source code. And we think, you know, you talked a lot about trust and we think uh, having open source code is crucial for people to be able to have trust in you, or I would say better to not have to need to trust you. And so our approach is kind of like a middle ground, or I would say maybe a best of both worlds approach. And so we use a general purpose microcontroller where we run all the code on there, all the code is open source. And then we harden our hardware wallet with the secure chip. And so we don't run like the Bitcoin crucial code on there. We just use it to make it more difficult to have, have some key storage and also make it a requirement that a hacker, if they possess a device, would also need to hack both the microcontroller, but also the secure chip. Uh, and so we think it adds security, but also maintains the open source nature where, where people can vet our code independently. Ah, okay. That's interesting. Thanks for this explanation. Mm -hmm. Okay, um, Douglas, thanks. Let's get a little bit back to more general questions. What I would be interested in is you've been in the Bitcoin space for a long time. You are the founder of a company in the space. You, you are working on Bitcoin security, hardware and software. How did all these experiences change? the way you see Bitcoin maybe from from early on to now? Hmm. <laughs> um, or maybe just yeah. as another idea, did the use of Bitcoin or your life with Bitcoin in a way change your behavior or maybe your perspective uh, to life, anything like that? Yeah, uh, hard to say. I, I think uh, I'm, I'm sure it did. So I, I changed careers. <laughs> <laughs> I'm no longer in academia. I'm in entrepreneurial world. And so, of course, that's that's a fundamental life change in, in my behavior. But I would say as far as as far as my outlook on life, I'd say generally probably not, because I, I think um you know if, if Bitcoin didn't exist, I'd I'd probably still uh be living my life in a similar way. Maybe it's a different startup in a different field. Again, somewhere where I think, you know somehow in some little way I could contribute to something special that changes the world. And I think, you know, Bitcoin, I, I guess it's the the right place at the right time for me with, with Bitcoin where, you know, opportunities uh, presented themselves where I, I could jump in and try to contribute to something I think is, is very special. And I would say, I guess my answer 
was no, because I guess my philosophy is a bit of uh, uh, eternal optimist uh, kind of thing, where I, I think, you know, if you work hard on something you love and you believe in, you can make an impact in the world. And I guess I'm grateful that it can be Bitcoin at this moment. Mm -hmm. Great. Yeah. It gives, it gives life a meaning in a way. Yeah. I think that that that's a nice nice statement in the sense that it gives away or it gives um gives you a reason to do something gives you a reason to do something important. Mm. Do you have any message for our listeners or not only for our listeners? What what would you put in an ad if I would uh, buy for you an ad to be displayed on all social media platforms? What would you <laughs> what would you say? Oh no. <laughs> yeah, I'm not a marketing person. <laughs> yeah, but what what do you think is important for people to know? Yeah, I think yeah, it, like you said earlier, it, it's it's still really early in the space and and so I think yeah, I, I really like the direction yeah. the new direction you're taking your podcast to try try to open up this this complicated world to to new people and I, I think you know it it doesn't have to be complicated. And when you actually try to do things, for example, just making an online purchase with Bitcoin, I think people will be surprised at how easy it is, actually. I was really surprised all the way back in 2013, 2014, how much simpler using Bitcoin was than, than credit cards. It just felt so clean and easy. And I think, you know, just letting people be aware that there's this, this technology and now this ecosystem and this whole philosophy exists now it's out there that people may not be be aware of and you know the power that can come from it and so one of the things that really attracted me to bitcoin uh, early on was this uh, concept of empowering individuals uh, and so uh, part of the philosophy of our company is to to help support that to equip individuals so that they can uh, empower themselves and i think you know bitcoin brings us to the people and it's it's hard to predict where that's going to lead to in the future but i think it's going to be quite special because if you look back on the history of technology anytime there's a great great revolution where power is brought to the people you have huge advances in in society starting with, with you know agriculture or the wheel um, written language with the printing press the internet i think bitcoin is the next step and so opening people up to i guess appreciate These aspects of Bitcoin is, is something that I think would be special for an ad that's spread across all social media. Mm -hmm. how, how to stick that into, into a tweet with a limited word count? Maybe I'll leave to you. <laughs> yeah, I, I, I always have this challenge when I uh, find the titles for the podcast idea, <laughs> like the interviews, you know, like also with you, I'm always then trying to find the essence of the interview. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay, great. Thank you very much. That was very, very interesting. I hope not only for me, but also for our listeners. Please uh, tell us where they can find Shift Crypto and uh, maybe yourself and follow your work. Yeah. Yeah. Again, thank you very much for the opportunity. It was great to be on the podcast. If, if your listeners are interested in learning more about us, you can find us at our, let's say the best place to start is our website, shiftcrypto.ch. Um, CH is uh, the country code for Switzerland. And from there, you can you can scroll down to the bottom of the page and find links to all of our social media, Twitter, Telegram, uh, and so on. Mm -hmm. Yes, I will also put it in the show notes. Yeah. Great. 
Okay, thank you very much, Douglas. It's exactly one hour. And <laughs> thanks for that. And have a nice day. Yeah, thank you very much. That's it for today. If you like my show, please share it with your friends and hit the subscribe button in your podcast player now. Thanks to my sponsors who make it possible that I can produce the show. Localbitcoins.com, Shift Crypto with the Bitbox O2 and Coinfinity with their card wallet. Music. Start with yes, delicate beats. Idea, content and production. Yours truly, Anita Posch.